1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 8. We're concerned with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in more detail this evening. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away, and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? He said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we consider this part of the word of God, we might come away with the same conviction as the widow of Zarephath, that Elijah is truly a man of God, and the word of the Lord that he speaks is indeed the truth. And Lord, we cannot come away with that conclusion apart from your Spirit working in our minds and in our hearts and convincing us of these things. Lord, we pray then that you would be gracious to us this night and take of the things of God, the things of Christ, and show them to us. We ask it for his sake. Amen. Amen. We are informed from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ in Luke's Gospel and chapter 4, verse 25, that heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. That is confirmed again in Scripture in James chapter 5 and verse 17, where reference is made to Elijah and how he prayed. There was famine in the land, a great famine in the land, and it had spread over the borders of Israel into neighbouring Sidon and perhaps some of the other surrounding nations as well. 
The Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament church were familiar then with this story of Elijah and this widow. We don't even know her name, we don't even know the name of her son. She is the widow of Zarephath. But she lives in the land of Sidon. That is Jezebel territory. Jezebel's father was named Ethbaal, which means Baal is alive. But in her house, this widow entertains one of God's special servants, Elijah the prophet. His name means, my God is the Lord. And the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, graciously makes himself known to this widow of Zarephath in the heartland of Baal. There's a note of irony here in this chapter. It leaves you on the one hand side, sad, and on the other hand smiling. Sad because of the unbelief in Israel. Sad because Elijah is not sent to any widow in Israel, but to a widow outside of Israel because of Israel's unbelief. That's the point of the reference in Luke chapter 4 by our Lord Jesus Christ. But you smile. Why? Because of God's mercy to this widow and to her son, a Gentile widow. She's in the same category as Ruth, the Moabites, the same category as Naaman, the Syrian, who is mentioned in a few chapters further on and was healed of his leprosy through the ministry of Elisha, Elijah's successor. I want to look with you this evening at three things. First of all, God's blessing on the widow, and we will spend most of our time there. But then secondly, God's judgment upon Baal and idol worshippers And then thirdly, God's encouragement to the church of Christ. First of all then, God's blessing on the widow. We pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 17 as the Lord has told Elijah to go to Zarephath and there he will find a widow whom God has commanded. That doesn't mean to say that he has necessarily spoken to her, but he has made all the arrangements. He is commanded by his providence. A widow there to provide for you. When he comes to Zarephath, he finds a widow picking up a few sticks. And as he speaks to her, he discovers that she's collecting these few remaining sticks in order to cook the last meal for herself and for her son. She has no money in her purse. She has no more food other than what is left in the, in the flour bin and in the jar of oil. After that is gone, there is nothing left. They will die. Her heart was heavy. The sun would have been shining because there were no clouds in the sky. There was no rain. The sunshine, though outside, didn't brighten her face because inside there was darkness as she was facing death. Starvation and death. Now a widow is someone who is obviously a sad figure. I'm even sadder here. Not only bereaved, not only vulnerable, but she was helpless. And there was no one to help her as she faced starvation and death. The Sidonians worshipped Baal and no doubt she had been brought up under that kind of religion. Baal was supposed to be alive but the name F. Baal was a joke. Baal was useless. Baal was helpless. How long had the famine gone on? We know it went on for three and a half years. How long had it gone on before Elijah came to Sidon? We do not know. But already there was severe famine. So at least one year had gone by when there had been no rains and no harvest. Maybe two years had gone by. Two winters had gone by and no winter rain and no harvests. If Baal was alive, then where on earth was he? He just left her. She and others like her were abandoned to their fate. 
But here is the God of Israel. The God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is known in Israel as a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows in his holy habitation. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Psalm 68 and verse 5. You know, if you read through your Bible, you go through the law of Moses. There are passages in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, that speak particularly of the fatherless, the widow, the stranger, within your gates. They were the peculiar object of God's mercy. And Israel was to take care of them. And God took care of them. And here is the God of Israel going out to a Gentile to a pagan, Baal-worshipping widow. And his blessing is displayed to this woman in two remarkable ways. He makes himself known to this woman through his servant Elijah. Two miracles. The first of them concerns the provision of daily food. The God of Israel provides daily food for her. Now we find in verse 12 that she seems to be aware of the God of Elijah. As the Lord your God lives. I'm not sure precisely the significance of that statement. She seems to be aware that he is the living God. How does she know this when she's hardly met Elijah? I do not know. We are not told. But we find then Elijah comes and he makes demands of this lady. She could have reacted and said, well you're just what I need. Aren't you? Another mouth to feed. Don't you know that my larder is empty? What do you think you're doing? All her money is gone, all her food is gone. She's thin, emaciated, wearied, She's expecting to die. And this man comes along and asks for food and for water. And then he goes even a step further and says, go and cook me and and give me the first helping. (laughs) But before she can really protest, Elijah has already spoken to her a word of assurance and comfort. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, do not fear. How many times do you read that in your Bible? Do not be afraid. Spoken to Abraham, spoken to Hagar, spoken to the shepherds in the fields and many others. Don't be afraid. And then, verse 14 gives the explanation as to why she is not to be afraid. And it is a glorious explanation of God's mercy and God's power. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. The Lord God of Israel is alive and he is a life-sustaining God. But this is Zarephath. This is not Samaria. This is not Jerusalem. Here is God revealing his power to sustain life over against Baal who is useless. The idols that are nothing. This is the Lord God of Israel. He can come and does come to the rescue of this poor woman. And we read in verses 15 and 16, almost in a matter-of-fact way, that she went away, she did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. This woman obeyed. This woman believed. She didn't question Elijah. 
She believed in the God of Israel and staked her life on doing what Elijah, God's servant, said. And she believed in God's ability, she believed in God's willingness to provide for her and for her son and for this man who had suddenly and unexpectedly landed on her doorstep. It was God's word that brought the curse and the drought. Remember those dramatic words of chapter 17 and verse 1 when Elijah first appeared on the scene. But in the midst of the curse and the drought, there is a word of life, a word of blessing, a word that provides daily for this woman. How many days did God supply the needs of that household? We are not precisely told. But every single day she went. There was the flour. There was the oil. Just enough for that day. Here, I say, is the God of Israel who is willing to show his mercy and his power to this widow who up to that point before she met Elijah had been steeped in idolatry, the Baal worship that was part and parcel of the nation of Sidon. Now she believes in the God who is the Lord of Israel. And she lives daily living daily by faith upon his promise. And many days, each day, she lives and thrives upon his goodness. That's the first thing that the God of Israel does for this woman. He sustains her life and the life of her son and through that household then Elijah is also sustained. But now this widow, who's put her faith in God, is in for a shock. We now find her faith is severely tested. Verse 16 ends on a high. Verse 17 plunges us into the crisis of a far more serious kind. It happened, we are told, that these things, after these things, the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious, there was no breath left in him. He died. How old was he? I don't know. But he was the only means this woman would have, subsequently, of being supported. And he dies. How would you have responded to such a crisis? This woman has hardly been, let me put it this way, a believer in the Lord God of Israel five minutes. She's been living on the promise. She's seen God work these things out and suddenly it's as if this same God is now going to crush her and strip her of all her confidence and assurance and comfort. The son becomes so sick he dies. Can you imagine her reasoning with herself? What was the point of all the flour? What was the point of all the oil? My son's dead. Can you imagine the grief that came over her? She really is now desolate. She really now does feel alone. And she feels this is one step too far. And suspicion and anger take over. Verse 18. What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Have you come to expose my sin? This woman now feels guilty. I'm being punished. I'm being punished for something I've done, for some wrongdoing. That's why my son has been taken from me. That's despair. But it is all too common, even among God's people. You say, well, this is a severe test. This woman has hardly been a believer five minutes. No, that it, yes, that is true. But God sometimes takes us through very dark days. Things that are devastating, things that are bewildering. But he is in control. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord God of Israel. Nothing of God has changed. But the circumstances have altered. He permits her to undergo this sickening blow. Same way as he allowed Job to go through the trials that he went through. 
This is the God who brought life and death into the world. And neither life nor death are outside of his control. Baal is no God. Baal is a figment of people's imaginations. Baal is a lie. Nonsense. But God is. And he has the power in his hands of life and death. He's already given her life by supplying her with food every day. Now what is he doing? Before I answer that question, let me remind you that these sorts of things are not far removed from us. Some of you are old enough, and some of you who are younger will have read, it must be about 50 years ago now, the death of Jim Elliot, a missionary who was sent to the Alka Indians, and they killed him. Some of you will have read the story of Johnny Erickson, who at the age, I think, of 15 or 16, died into what she thought was safe, deep water. But it turned out to be shallow and she broke her neck and was paralysed for the rest of her life from the neck downwards. And that lady is still alive. But what a crisis for a teenager to face and for her parents to face. And more recently, bringing it even closer to home. Our brother, Dan Haynes, just after a year of being married, cancer consumes his life. Just a few weeks ago in August, Arif and Kathy Khan murdered in cold blood in Islamabad. It's the same kind of thing. Why does God permit these things? And how do we respond to them? Well, now we see here the power of God at work even more dramatically than in the first case. The first miracle provided her and her son and Elijah with food until the end of the drought. Now, the second miracle, the God of Israel raises her son from the dead and restores him to her. In verses 19 to the end of the chapter, we read of this account. Elijah does not try and explain things to her. He does not try and rationalize what God has done. He simply says to her, give me your son. And she gives him his son. He takes her up he takes him up into the upper room where he has a place where he is living and he lays him out on the bed. And then Elijah begins to cry out to the God of Israel. But he doesn't address him as the God of Israel. It's far more intimate. Verse 20. The Lord, he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God. O Lord, my God begins to plead the cause of this poor widow. He expresses her anguish and sorrow and her grief. You have brought this tragedy. He acknowledges you are the Lord of life and death. You are the one who has taken the life of her son. You've allowed him to die. And then, in a symbolic act, he stretches himself out on the child three times, and again pleads, again cries out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Why does he stretch himself out three times? There are some people who say, well, it's a this is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, you can well look puzzled. I, I really can't see that one at all. It's a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can't find that. It's a nice suggestion, but I don't think it has anything to do with that at all. What it is simply saying is, he is, he is you know, when, when you repeat something, you're in earnest. This is a fervent crying out unto God. He stretches himself out, saying, in effect, as there is life in my body, 
Give life to the body that is dead. Let this lifeless body be as my living body. And let his soul come back and give him life. And I think each time he stretched himself out and he cried out unto God. There's the intensity of the thing. He's asking a tremendous miracle of God. He's already proved the power of God when he prayed that it might not rain for three and a half years. But now this man, this son is dead. There is no life in him. He has carried him up in his arms lifeless. But now he pleads with God, not once, not twice, but three times. And the Lord hears the voice of Elijah. Verse 22, And the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. Then he goes back downstairs, not carrying a dead, lifeless child. He carries him. Can you imagine that woman's face? Can you imagine her son's face? We're not told. All we are told is he brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. The accusations of the widow are gone. The despair is gone. The tears are gone. And she effectively says, well, if I needed any further evidence, then here it is. Here it is now beyond any question, beyond all doubt. I know, verse 24, you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. And her faith in God is fully restored and strengthened as a consequence of God's revealed power and mercy to her and to her son. And now she puts it all together. She thinks every single day, the flower, the oil. And now my son, every time she sees her son, every morning, he's alive. And it's because he was dead, but now he's been made alive. Her son has been restored to her. And it is God's doing. And it is the man of God's praying that proves to her, evidence to her, that the word of the Lord in his mouth is nothing less than the truth. All this is in Zarephath. All this is to a widow. To the God of Israel, he provides, he saves, he delivers, he hears and answers prayer. He is powerful, his word is true and faithful. He cares, he is reliable. What is Baal in comparison to that? The God of Israel is real, he is alive and he hears and answers prayer. Now the raising of her son is not the raising of her son to the resurrection of everlasting life. I don't need to say a great deal more because that was dealt with this morning. The son would have died again. But it is a sign. It is a sign like the raising of Jairus' daughter, like the raising of Lazarus, like the raising of the widow of Nain's son. It is a sign of the power of the kingdom of God. Here is the living power of God. Here is Jesus Christ who has power over life and over death. He died and he rose from the dead never again to die. But this Jesus comes and he saves, as Gadsby said in that hymn, Immortal Honours, he saves from death, destruction and despair. That's the God of Israel. That's the God of Elijah. My God is the Lord. Now we've been hinting all along that this is a further judgment upon Baal and those who trust in Baal and worship Baal. That's what I want to briefly deal with. Secondly, this is God's judgment on Baal. Here is the Lord, the God of Israel, displaying power, displaying mercy, real power to a widow and to her son. Here is life, 
life-giving power, life-giving mercy in the midst of death. And not only physical death, but spiritual death. Because all around is idolatry. This nation is in the dark. There is nothing of God until Elijah turns up. And there is nothing of life until the Elijah turns up and speaks the word of God and the word of life to this widow and to her son. And all this is why there is a curse. All this is why there is a drought. All this is why death is everywhere. How great then is God. He's not confined to one land, to one nation. He's not a God, a God of Israel whom the Syrians said, well, maybe he's the God of the hills, maybe he's the God of the plains. You'll find that in 1 Kings 20. The superstition. He is the living God. And he is in control of life and death. He pronounces curses. He pronounces blessings. He provides food. He restores life in the midst of death. His word is true. What he says comes to pass. He hears and he answers the prayers of those who cry out unto him. And he comes to Baal's heartland, sending Elijah his servant and shows the folly of idol worship. He shows Baal's total impotence. He is useless. He is worthless. Three and a half years, finally, without any rain. Where are you, Baal? It is a precursor to Elijah's mocking of the prophets that we will find in 1 Kings and chapter 18. Our God is the Lord God of Israel. Our God is the God of Elijah and he rules heaven and earth and he rules over life and over death and all the processes that go to making the seasons, to making rain and the sunshine. Remember Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, he says to Noah, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter. Day and night shall not cease. This is God. This is the God whose very words spoken all those years again to Noah is still fulfilling those very things. You say, well, there's famine. So where's the summer and the winter? Well, these were temporary things. The famine was a temporary thing because of idolatry, because of faithlessness. God is the one who sends the rain. God is the one who sends the sunshine. God is the one who sends the seasons. And these great miracles displayed to this widow in Zarephath are a revelation of God's power and a revelation of God's mercy to overcome the effects of sin and to expose the folly of Baal and idol worship. And these signs anticipate the day when this world will be set free from sin and death in its entirety. But they are judgments on Baal and all who worship him. They are judgments on faithless Israel, on Ahab, on Jezebel and their priests. It is because of Israel's unbelief that Elijah went to Sidon. And there in Sidon, there in Zarephath, he showed the power and the mercy of God. The power and the mercy of God that was denied Israel. People were dying in Israel. People were dying in Zarephath. And the Lord shows his power just to one woman. He shows his mercy to one woman and her son. When Jesus Christ mentioned that Elijah went to Zarephath and not to the widows in Israel, we find there that it was because of Israel's unbelief. Nazareth was in unbelief 
they took Jesus out and wanted to push him over the cliff and kill him. The spirit of Jezebel was still alive in our Lord's day. He withheld grace from Israel because of their sin, because of their unbelief. And there's a vital lesson here. That if you refuse God's mercy and God's grace and God's truth, he may withdraw that mercy, grace and truth from you and give it to somebody else. And then leave you in your sin justly to face punishment. He did that to Israel. He did it again in the day of Christ. He did it again in the days of the apostles. When the Jews turning away from the gospel. Paul and others said then we will go to the Gentiles. And be a light to the Gentiles. This is a precursor. One Gentile. One Gentile. God is not mocked. You see, he is alive. He is sovereign in the display of his grace and his mercy. But there are encouragements, thirdly, for the Church of Christ. And I want to bring two of them in particular this evening. Firstly, we have one prophet, we have one Gentile widow and her son, and we have the one true and living God, the God of Israel. Elijah and this widow, this widow is mentioned by our Lord Jesus Christ. The incident is referred to by James in the New Testament. The scriptures have been given to us to make us wise. And let us realise, yes, here is grace to one widow in particular and her son. But that same grace has now come to us. And not just to one of us, but to a great multitude that no man or woman can number. There are no longer just a few Gentiles here and there as there were in the old covenant. The blessing of Abraham has come to us. The widow believed in God. She obeyed God. Her faith was tested but her faith triumphed as she saw the power of God and the mercy of God. She received back her dead. The word of truth was that foundation for her faith. And yet now, the gospel, the same word of the Lord that is true, this gospel has now come to us and to all the nations of the world. Sovereign grace has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The God of Israel is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remember here is an infinite condescension. The Lord of heaven and earth who has reached down and reached down to vile worms and creatures like us and displayed saving power, saving mercy, saving love. In Jesus Christ, we have all the blessings of salvation. The Spirit of God has sealed us unto the day of our redemption. That glorious inheritance that belongs to those who are the justified and adopted sons of God, who live by faith and who die by faith, like Abraham, trusting in this God, like this widow, trusting in this God. Isn't that a marvel? Isn't that something that ought to captivate our hearts when we see something of the great heart of God that He has reached out to us? Israel was rejected because of their unbelief 
and God turned to the Gentiles and the gospel has gone to the uttermost parts of the earth and here we are 2,000 years later worshipping the same God who did these mighty things for his widow in Zarephath. And we know him far greater, in a far greater way, in a far fuller way than that woman could ever have known him. Because Christ has come. The Spirit of God has come. But you see, the way in which God works is very much the same as he did then. When God saves men and women, he chooses the weak. He chooses the lowly. He chooses those who count for nothing. If you had gone through the land of Sidon, would you have picked out this widow? And her son? Highly unlikely, but he wouldn't know she existed. But God knew. God set his love upon her. And he continues to do that. The weak, the lowly, those who count for little or nothing. To shame the wise and the powerful and the influential in this world. Insignificant people like the fatherless, the widow. There are many people, you know some of them, who think they can handle life and death without God. I read on a website this week the account of Alan Johnson, the man, the journalist who was captured and spent four months in captivity in Gaza. It makes very interesting reading. This man clearly is not a believer. But the struggles that he records, they make interesting but also sad reading. A believer would have responded in a very different way to the way that he responded in the face of death. We see men and women rely upon wealth, rely upon education, position, fame, material things, anything but the one true and living God. And money, possessions, things, they're never up to the task. They're powerless like Baal. They cannot give life and they certainly cannot restore when death steals away. It is only those who trust in Jesus Christ. He has the power. Life and death. I am the Alpha I am the Omega. I am the beginning. I am the end. I have the keys of death and Hades. I am alive forevermore. And though we die, yet there is a very real sense which we will never die. Join to Christ as we heard this morning. So there is an encouragement for us. Here is the saving power and mercy of God in Jesus Christ that has come to us. But then the second encouragement of the Church of Christ, I put it as a question. It may not seem as an encouragement initially. How have you responded, or how would you respond if you faced a similar tragedy to this woman? Some of you I know have suffered a devastating shock, bewildered, tendency then to panic, to despair, to accuse God, or to even think, that, yes, like this widow, God is punishing you for something you have done. That's the kind of thing that happens to us. This poor widow thought she had trusted in God in vain. Whatever goodness she received, it didn't last. But she was only a babe in the faith. She had yet to learn of the ways of God. Have there been times in the past when as a consequence of some of these things happening to you or something on a similar scale happening to you when you have thought that obeying and trusting in God was a waste of time. 
Maybe you thought to yourself, there's no point. This Christianity does not work. And yet not realising that it is a test, it is a trial, a proving time. When God will prove himself to you and actually strengthen your faith. What he's asking you to do is to hang on to him and to his word. Your life depends upon it. This woman was young in the faith, as it were. She was very inexperienced. But the end of her, her, her the story brings us to the point where she says, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. But when tragedy strikes, does the word of truth actually change? Does God, does God actually become a liar? No, no, of course he doesn't. You see, we begin to impute these things to God because we despair. And we can't understand the ways of God. We're bewildered, we're perplexed. Sometimes God, even though he is a tender, loving father, allows us to be perplexed and bewildered. He is under no obligation to explain his ways to us. He never explained to Job the whole story. We have a fuller story than Job had. It is Elijah who remained calm. It's Elijah who trusted in God and it's Elijah who prayed pouring out the widow's griefs and anxieties. And you say, well, if I was facing a tragedy it would be great if I had an Elijah living in my upper room that I could call upon. But you have one greater than Elijah, don't you? The Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he our great high priest? Whoever lives to make intercession for us. Were we considering Hebrews 7.25 the other week? He has an indestructible life. He ever lives to intercede for us. He ever lives to save and he saves to the uttermost. You see, we have to hang on to Christ. We have one greater than Elijah. We have one who says to us, whatever you go through, Paul, you want this bone in the flesh removed? No. Paul asked three times, so earnest was he. Three times the Lord said no. But didn't leave him with a no. said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. You see, what God is saying when tragedy strikes is, you can hold on to me and to my word. You can rely upon me and upon my word. You do not have to press all the panic buttons. Nothing of me changes, though your circumstances change. Though grief and sorrow and distress may overwhelm you and for a time almost threaten to drown you. The Bible tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when tragedy strikes that's what you hang on to. That's what you hang on to. And if your guilty conscience says well that God is punishing me for something that I have done you say but no there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us who can be against us? And that includes all your sin. That isn't the way God deals with his children. He's not obliged to explain everything that he is doing. But there is never any question regarding his love, or his power, or the truthfulness of his word. And that's what you hang on to. There are never any grounds for despair. That's the comfort. There are no grounds for despair. As long as God is the living God and he is your God. What if you look back in the past and say, well I didn't obey. I didn't trust. You ask God for forgiveness. You treated him as if he was not in control. You treated him as if he was unreliable. Confess your sin if you haven't already done so. Confess your sin. Come back 
and say, Lord, if this ever happens again, give me the grace and the strength never to do that again. Some of you have been through tragedy. You've been bewildered. You've been distressed. You've been perplexed. What have you discovered? You discovered a lot about yourself. But I trust you discovered an awful lot about God. And how reliable he actually is. Your faith was stretched almost to the limit. Stretched so tight like a piece of elastic it almost threatened to break. But it didn't break. It didn't break. And you're still here to tell the story of God's goodness, faithfulness and truth. You probably learned more about God during that time of tragedy than you perhaps learned in many years as a Christian. But God will never let his people down. God is not like Baal. Don't treat him like Baal. He is real. He is true. He is powerful. He is merciful. He is faithful. He is utterly reliable. Trust in him with all your heart and prove him to be the God that he says he is. Amen. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would forgive us for the times of stress and tragedy. All too often we have panicked, accused you, forgotten your word, forgotten your power, forgotten your mercy, and imagined that you have abandoned us. Lord, forgive us for such folly. How could we in the face of such love, such mercy, such power as is seen in Jesus Christ our Saviour, we thank you that he is able to save unto the uttermost those who come unto God through him. Lord, we pray that we may prove the sufficiency of your word and the sufficiency of your grace and your power and your mercy to keep us whatever happens to us in this life, even when we are confronted by death itself, may our hope and confidence be in Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Blessed be his name forever and forever. Amen.